Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. Sorry, I was drinking my free coffee. (laughs) All right, here we go. Ready? I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Grace Lynch. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. We are now an award-winning podcast. That's like a a hyphenated thing we get to put into everything. I'm adding it to my bio right now on my website. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. Getting a a tattoo. Uh, My first. Uh, So it's... The Communicator Award uh, mm-hmm. for Best Politics Podcast. Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I, we won specifically for the episode we had at the beginning of this year that featured our good pal Ben Wickler. So a big shout out to the whole Majority 54 team, including Edie and Adesua, who work really hard on this show. Not the only candor who won an award this week, from what That's I understand. That's true. Yeah. The Growth League, uh, Diana's podcast, won for Best Business Podcast. So... You know, I'm married to an award-winning podcaster who is married to an award-winning podcaster. We love to hear it. Wonder Media actually, you know, just to toot our horn for just a second, did pretty well at these awards because we had two other shows, White Picket Fence and Words to Win By, which I also have the pleasure of working on, that also won awards in their various categories. So just look at us out here communicating, communicating up a storm. I'm so proud of I'm proud of us. You know, very proud of us. Yeah. I think we're going to get an award for this episode for communicating about how well we communicate. I think we're going to get an award for humility in this episode, actually. <laughs> I will be accepting that on our behalf. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's talk some trash. Yeah, Jason, you have something for us. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, fiend of the pod, uh, Josh Hawley, uh, <laughs> so introduced a bill uh, on Tuesday that aims to revoke Disney's copyrights. Uh, so, the Republicans, you know, they're all trying to outdo each other attacking what they're referring to as a woke corporation, which is, I mean, those are two words that are combined. I'm not sure that it's a combination of words that makes sense. But anyway, uh, so they're trying to outdo each other. So Holly, uh, he, who, by the way, is a former constitutional law professor and uh, attorney general and, you know, makes quite a bit of his whole, like, you know, I'm a lawyer thing. Uh, it, it would, and I guess, you know, went to law school with you, Ravi. So like, you're a witness to this. His bill would dramatically rewrite U.S. copyright law, shortening the total term available to all copyright holders going forward by several decades. It would also seek to retroactively limit Disney's copyrights, effectively stripping the company of much of its intellectual property. Obviously, this would, this is a euphemism they use in the article, would face several legal obstacles, uh, like the Constitution, for instance. (laughs) Ah, yeah, 
I love that most coverage of this is just about Josh Hawley trying to strip Disney of Mickey Mouse. Like he wants to take <laughs> and steal away Mickey Mouse. I think that that's a delightful way to frame this for him. Yeah. I think this is like a right for the wrong reason situation, which is like, you know, in our in our IP classes back in the day in law school, I had this professor, uh, this you know wonderfully eccentric guy named Yohai Benkler. And he he walked us through this thing called the Mickey Mouse uh, Copyright Protection Act, which made no sense. Basically, what happened is Congress used to go in and it, it keeps extending backwards protections for authors, et cetera. And it would, basically, it was a big lobbying effort by Disney to protect all of these assets, which like a lot of these things should be in the public domain by now. I'm not sure what the clock is on Mickey Mouse, for example, but like, you know, there's a lot of old text, for example, that don't belong to any estate anymore. And that's a good thing for society. And it makes no sense for public policy to go back and incentivize dead people to create things, right? So in many ways, you want a shorter window on copyright because you're trying to incentivize people who are alive today to create creative works, not people who don't exist anymore, right? Now, he's doing it for the wrong reasons. Can, can, um, I just, yeah. can I just point out that, like, I just brought this up just before the podcast started. Like, Ravi had no time to prepare for this. <laughs> and you just pulled, like, out of your fourth point of contact, this analysis of U.S. copyright law specific to, like, anyway, It was the you. six months I spent in law school, you know, before <laughs> I joined the Obama campaign. Because um, it's not right what he's doing. Like, to be clear, he's what, you know, Jared Polis has called an authoritarian socialist on the right. You know, he they're using government to clamp down on their enemies. And, you know, they love to call us socialists, but... You know, they'll, they'll use government to suppress any speech they don't like. And this is an example of that. So even though I don't love our copyright laws, I'm, I'm not a big fan of selectively changing them to punish your political enemies. I would just like to point out, though, for the record, that I feel like I was really chastised last time for not finding the whimsy of this segment. And while I respect and admire the copyright analysis <laughs> Ravi just gave, I'm not sure I would count it as whimsical. So I would just like there to be some acknowledgement. Yeah, I think uh, the last two weeks, we clearly have taken this segment and just nerded it up, uh, myself included. <laughs> like it's, been, it's been a problem. And to your point, I mean, it's important to remember that the reason that they're mad at Disney is because Disney opposed the don't say gay bill in Florida. So like if we're going to do because they're claiming this is about First Amendment rights and free speech. So let's compare this. Disney said, hey, we don't think it's right for the government to make a law that says teachers can't acknowledge the existence of homosexuality when speaking with their students. So that was like Disney's point, which was like, I think, a, a free speech point that they were making. And the, and the response to that is somebody like Josh Hawley saying, hey, that's messed up, you know, trying to cancel Disney. Josh Hawley, by the way, he whined like like a stuck pig when a, when a private company said, hey, given that you tried to mount a coup and overthrow a democratically elected government, we're not going to publish your book. And he was like, yeah. hey, that's cancel culture. You can't do that. So like, yep. this is, it makes no sense. Can this I point is out about, something though? Like, so that wine like a stuck pig. It's so squeal, that's but be squeal was mean. I'm just and saying so like, I look, like, if the pig is stuck, they're just asking for help. You know what I'm saying? I'm a friend of the animals here. Yeah, but like, the, the origin of the the origin of it is squeal like a stuck pig, which the idea being like, that's how you know which pig, you know, that's like, oh, well, it's that one. It's the one that squeals, you know, I think. 
I don't know. I, I this is not my area of expertise. Is uh, you know, the origins of yeah. your colloquialism. You know, it's, it's, it, this is like you know the scorpion versus the tarantula here. It's like Disney has been donating money to terrible people for a long time. They'll do anything they can to steamroll, um, you know, any legitimate criticism of some of the things that they do. Now, and this is true of a lot of corporations now who've now made their bed with the GOP and now the GOP's turning on them. So in a, in a way, it's almost like let them fight it out, on, uh, except for the fact that there are real teachers and students in the middle of this. And even though like the Disney CEO came around to this late, uh, he's still right in the end in, in, his, in what he did. And he has a ton of employees in Florida that, that he's looking out for. So even if I'm like, he was just responding to pressure, you know, in the end, they wound up doing the right thing and him being punished for that is still wrong. But it's just like, you know, not the greatest people on either side of this debate at the highest levels. And just a lot of people are getting, you know, trampled in the meantime, which is really bad, you know? What I think would be awesome is, you know, the old thing where uh, people say when they don't like the options on the ballot that they're going to write in Mickey Mouse. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How cool would it be if like Josh Holly lost a primary to Mickey Mouse? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we should make that happen. For our ad read, I'm going to kick it over to you, Jason. Listeners, Jason might sound a little different. It's OK. He's not sick. Uh, it's just something going on with Mike. Howdy, y'all. You know that I love AG1 when I'm uh, driving true to uh, uh, Little League practice with my uh, with my giant truck. I'm uh, often thinking like, hey, how could I fuel up for this incredible uh, day that I'm going to spend outside with my son playing baseball? And the only thing that makes that better is a tasty glass of AG1. That's right. And I'm sure that was probably your seventh Little League uh, practice that day. And what, mm-hmm. doubleheader in mm-hmm. the morning for your baseball league? Is that right? Absolutely. I don't know how you do it. But actually, I do know how you do it. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health audience and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutritional source. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Then to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. And again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority. Take ownership over your health and pick up your ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We all know about the Helix mattresses. We've talked about it a lot in this podcast. And Helix now has a furniture company called Allform. And I've got some of their stuff in my office. I got it in my apartment. And Jason, I know you have it in your living room because I sat on your Allform couch while I was in your home. That's right, Ravi. You did. You know? Diana and I were standing around the kitchen one day, and she said, we should have a couch in here. And I was like, you know what? That's a great idea. And so I was like, why don't we use Allform, and you, Diana, can pick out everything because you have such great taste. That's right. And Diana does have great taste. And you know what? She's got a great taste in a husband because you're like a swell guy. Aw. And you know what? For you out there, your taste might not be my taste, right? I have a brown leather uh, chair in my office and a sectional in my apartment. And you can go in there, you can customize it. This stuff is so easy to put together. And I'm a city guy, and even I had no problem putting my Allform couch together. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority54. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. All right, Ravi, uh, let's talk about something that actually matters. Well, we definitely want to come back to the looming Supreme Court decision 
on abortion rights. And you know, Politico just reported this morning, and, and Politico is the key source here because of the people who broke the original draft opinion. They're reporting that the Alito opinion is still the only opinion in circulation and that the Supreme Court members are meeting on Thursday, the day that this pod drops, to conference on this. And so we'll probably learn more. Notable from a process perspective that they know this, which I think suggests that their source is inside the the court and probably not a spouse or something, you know, which are things that people have speculated or like somebody who's like, you know, hacked or something, the Supreme Court, like this, they're getting regular updates on, on what's happening. So to me, that's notable. But a lot happening in and around this. Uh, I think to start, the Senate is uh, set to vote on a bill to shore up abortion rights. That bill will fail because Manchin and Cinema are on record saying they're not going to revisit the filibuster. But you also have these pro-choice, you know, like we could put them in quotes because I'm not exactly sure. This is what the media calls them, pro-choice Republicans, Murkowski, Collins, and the senator, I always forget her name, from West Virginia. What is, is Capito? This, yes, uh, more Capito. Uh, so, look, what is is this notable in any way? Is this just a symbolic vote? It feels pretty symbolic to me. <laughs> I think that the vast majority of American people would like something to actually happen in response to this, and the Senate going through a ceremonious vote in which we see that yes, in fact. Mitt Romney is not going to affirm a woman's right to choose what happens to her body is not particularly interesting or impactful. I hear this argument of like every senator needs to be on the record, but I am less interested in this weird performative shaming of a group of 50 people than or 52 people than if we could actually just start trying to make something happen. I think it is important, but I also think it's frustrating because of how it is going to play out because it's important because we're going to have a midterm election. And from everything I can tell, this has to be at the center of that debate. Like we, in order to go on offense, we have to be talking about this issue between now and November and after November as well. Like we're right. The majority of people in the country agree with us. This is absolutely at stake. If they get power and they get the White House in 24, they are going to pass a national ban on abortion. Um, so this has to be highlighted, and this is an important way to highlight it. And at the same time, what is super frustrating is that it is going to be continually played as, oh, it failed. No, no, no. Like, it didn't get 60. It didn't fail. Like, And, and that that makes people think, oh, well, it's majority of people didn't want it. And so that's the that's the next level difficulty of messaging it. But I do think you have to have the vote and demonstrate uh, for people very clearly where the other side, where the Republicans are on it so they can see the stakes and, and the battle lines. Yeah, I think there's this rhetoric about the Democrats failed, the Democrats this, like, look, like we need more votes in the Senate. That's the that's the answer here. We need to get you know, we need to maintain the House. It's not that like Chris Coons is like waking up today and being like, you know what, I'm going to stymie this abortion bill and I'm not going to do enough. He can't, they literally can't convince two people and really another 48 to mm -hmm. go along with them, right? We always focus on those two, but there's the 48. And I think that's what Democrats need to do is be like, look, it's not just Mansion and Cinema, they could be better, but the problem isn't just them. There's 48 other people here who bear some responsibility. And the more we keep focusing on mansion and cinema, the more that those 48, you know, get away with, you know, what they're doing here. 
But the point is, is like, no, we shouldn't put a lot of stock in it. But I do think you got to have the vote, get people on the record, move on and make it a major issue and try not to have people saying, well, the Democrats couldn't do anything about it. It's no, it's that's not what's going on. See, I'm already frustrated. That frustration is exactly why, to me, this feels performative, because I don't see any effort going into reframing this in any other more meaningful way. To me, it just seems like we, the Senate, must bring this to a vote so everyone's on the record. It's like, okay, great. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I know how this is going to happen, and I'm not really sure what the play after that is. It, like, once again feels extremely reactionary to what has been an incredibly thought-out, detailed, multi-decade-long plan on the right. So I understand the frustration of wanting to actually see something that feels as if it has a strategy. And when I hear you talk about it, Jason, I see the strategy. But why don't I hear that from anybody else? And, and Grace, how would you want to reframe it? I'm uh, just curious, because I think like I, I, I'm i not sure what and maybe this is the issue. Like, I, I'm not sure like of the, the, the options. How it sounds to me is a reaction to this decision or this drafted decision. So it feels very much like, do you agree with what Alito just wrote down? Yes or no. As opposed to, why don't we try to actually add the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution? Like, to me, that is a that has a vision. That is talking about equality. That is talking about an actual society in which women are in the Constitution and considered equal, it's actually it is in response to what Alito is saying and saying, like, you're right, women aren't anywhere in this in this original text. Let's fix that. It says something as opposed to just asking a room full of people, thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you agree with the with the hottest hits of the day? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm missing. Yeah. And just for our listeners who don't know a lot about the ERA. So explain a little bit about because it goes beyond abortion. So like, explain a little bit about yeah. what it would be. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's obviously commingled with the abortion history, because I think a lot of people like for sure. Siegel will say that the Roe, I think, slowed some of the momentum around passing, or at least they claim that slowed some of the momentum around passing the ERA. Yeah. Well, abortion became a really contentious issue that clouded, I would say, the ERA. But the ERA's main thrust was just to actually, like, put the rights of women into the Constitution, the equal rights of women into the Constitution, because as of right now, women do not show up anywhere in that document. And so there is no constitutional protections, technically, for women in this country at all to be considered equal humans. It's just not in there. So the ERA was an effort to enshrine that permanently in the Constitution. My rambling about it now is going to really not do it justice. And I would really recommend people listen to the first season of Ordinary Equality, which is a wonderful podcast that really documents the rise and attempt and failure of the ERA uh, when it first was attempted to be passed. I don't know, Grace. It sounds pretty radical. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm just kidding. It's it's an insane idea that women are people. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Corporations, though. I mean, we're all pretty clear on that. Super people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, they're woke now. Yeah. Yes. Oh. They're so they're mm. so, they're so personal. They're woke. So some of them are people. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the process stuff around this. The there are protests happening. Pro- process is the wrong word, but there's a lot of debate around protesting right now, which I think is the rights trying to deflect attention away from the substance of what's going on. The fact that there are at least 13 states with trigger laws, for example, and that a, there is an avalanche of states that have already passed abortion restrictions and, and many more who are taking this opportunity to do so. And that, that has real effects on people's lives. They want to deflect away from that. 
and they want to be the aggrieved parties here and they want to say that these protests are getting violence and you know that that protesters are, are protesting outside of supreme court justice houses etc no and we'll come we'll, we'll talk about that but i think one thing i want to point out here is that the supreme court erected a barrier in front of the supreme court in response to these protests and i find this notable because in 2014 in a case out of massachusetts it was mccullen versus coakley the supreme court arguing on First Amendment grounds, ruled on First Amendment grounds that the Massachusetts law, which allowed for 35-foot buffer zones around abortion clinics, was unconstitutional on First Amendment grounds. And this is uh, Scalia in this opinion. He says, protecting people from speech they don't want to hear is not a function that the First Amendment allows the government to undertake in public streets and sidewalks. This is a lot of the same members who voted, and that was a 9-0 decision, by the way, these are a lot of the same people who are now erecting their own barriers to protect themselves. You know, is there a contradiction here? I would also just to add on to that in 94, the Supreme Court's decision in Madsen versus Women's Health Center upheld that anti-abortion protesters could picket the homes, private residences of abortion providers. Are you serious? Uh-huh. Fucking wow. They they found that the barriers that at the time they allowed for the abortion clinics were onerous in a residential setting. <laughs> I'm losing patience uh -huh. with the Supreme Court people. You know, like this is a group of people, four of whom were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote. And I'm not including Alito because he was appointed in the second term. Right. People who lied, as we talked about last week, in front of the United States Senate uh, when asked about abortion, who have no transparency and who failed to apply basic ethics rules to themselves and who are now hiding from public scrutiny. It really pisses me off. The Washington Post editorial board came out kind of saying like, hey, protesters, let's calm down. Yeah, this is inappropriate. You're out of line. And I was speaking with Jamia Wilson, who's the co-host of the second season of Ordinary Equality. We've had her on the show. She's really wonderful. And she kind of said in response offhand this line I thought was great, which, which was whose democracy dies in the darkness, hmm. which is the tagline of the Washington Post. And just saying, like, how dare you essentially say in this particular issue, it's very important for women to sit down, take this quietly and go home. And it's uh, yeah, it's infuriating that these protests are even being talked about when we now have states across the country that are going way further right. than even banning abortion. This is not what the right wants to be talking about because what they're doing is radically unpopular. <sighs> but it's exhausting. And can I just layer in some stats here really quickly before I kick it to you, Jason, about why that that buffer zone was needed in the first place? Because from what I could tell, there was one Molotov cocktail thrown during these latest round of protests. And I'm sure there's more. Those people will be arrested, I'm sure. And they sh anybody who commits violence should be arrested. But this is why that this is from Jezebel. Since 1977, there have been at least 11 murders and 26 attempted murders of abortion providers, not to mention 42 bombings of clinics and homes, 194 incidents of arson, including the recent burning of a Tennessee Planned Parenthood clinic and routine stalking, doxing and threats. Yeah. I mean, people have pulled guns in abortion clinics and people <laughs> there is a need for people. It is typically women to sign up and volunteer to escort people to abortion clinics because it is such a harrowing journey to have to go and transverse in front of these people who are screaming and threatening. And yet 
a group of people gathering outside of Samuel Alito's home is making all this fuss. With candles. Which, like, by the way, yeah, with can- like pretty quietly. Like, Ravi sent through this incredible Tucker Carlson clip where he's like, this is, I'm, this is the mob. We hesitate even to bring you these pictures because they're so awful, but it's happening and you should see what it looks like. These are protesters. This is the mob outside Justice Samuel Alito's home in Virginia. And it's truly, like, 50 people standing quietly. <laughs> it's, I think some PA screwed that up, which is just joy for me. <laughs> like Somebody at Fox News got fired after that, but this is a great video, though. Well, this is their move. Like, when protesters are protesting something that people are like, I think I'm with the protesters, they're like, oh, are you? Because the protesters are protesting wrong. Like after after George Floyd was murdered, everybody was like, yeah, I saw the video. This is fucked up. Like, I, I feel like maybe I've been wrong about Black Lives Matter. And people were, you know, this is what people were saying across the country. Maybe I'm with this. And then you look at the polls. and It was like Black Lives Matter was suddenly twice as, as popular. And what did the Republicans do? They were like, yeah, but the way people are protesting, you're not with that. Right. I mean, this is exactly the same. This is their move They're You know. It's, this is their move. You got to run past it. People will do it with you in conversation. You got to go, okay, okay. Are we outside Samuel Alito's house right now? No, we're not. So then you and I don't actually need to debate this. Let's talk about <laughs> whether it's okay to say your daughter is not allowed to make a decision about her own body. Like, are you cool with that? Because like, that's really what we're talking about. Life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include a lack of motivation, feeling of helplessness or being trapped, detachment, fatigue, and more. And we associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feel burned out and BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. And that's why I love BetterHelp. It's a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. But of course you can. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and majority 54 listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com m54. That's B-E-T-T-E-R. H-E-L-P.com slash M54. Hey, it's Elise Hugh, host of TED Talks Daily. Sound familiar? Once in a century voter turnout. Once in a century pandemic. Old technology. Low budgets. Somehow democracy survives. What if the people with ideas to fix these problems actually had the resources to do it? The Audacious Project is catalyzing more than $900 million to fund changemakers who want to rescue our democracy. Follow TED Talks Daily to hear these ideas now. Well, I'm really excited about this interview. You know, I was sitting on my desk one day and I, and I saw the story of this teacher in Missouri, which obviously is our favorite state here at Majority 54. And she had her contract as a teacher was not renewed because she was teaching a book and teaching it in a way that the local school board did not like. 
And this is a story that's right at the heart of this conversation around this critical race theory idea and the strategy from the right wing in this country to punish educators for teaching kids about our history and about privilege and about race in America. And her story is just really sad and I think indicative of where we are in this country on education debates. And so here's an interview with that teacher Kim Morrison, Majority 54 listener, educator, and a new hero of mine. So let's jump right in. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, Kim, uh, you are from Missouri. We read about you. And it was funny, we were just kicking around um, the idea, like, what, what if we reached out to her to do an interview? And I think you are a listener to the pod before. Is that right? <laughs> I am. I am. Yes, I am. I was telling Grace that y'all have done a lot of laundry and a lot of meal prep on Sunday afternoons here in, in my corner of the state. <laughs> well, tell us about, yeah, where are you in, in Missouri? Would you situate us? So I'm in the middle of the Ozarks, which is in southwest Missouri. Um, our closest metropolis is Springfield, Missouri. So I'm near Lake Stockton. So about an hour from a fresh bunch of cilantro. Got it. Well, yeah. I, I've seen all of Ozark now, so I know everything about your life now. Everything. Yeah. Yep, that's it. Yeah. Is everybody, <laughs> I, I imagine everybody is embezzling funds for drug cartels in your neck of the woods. Is that right? Uh, so, well, well, let's get into your... So you've been a teacher. For, how long have you been teaching? In public schools, I've taught for, for eight years and four years at, this, at my current school. And you got embroiled in a bit of a controversy recently... Uh, walk us through this. You were teaching a book called Dear Martin. And what grade level were you teaching? And, and tell us a little bit about the book. All right. So this class is contemporary lit and it's for um, juniors and seniors. It's an elective. And Dear Martin is my second um, base text. Uh, we, we first read Long Way Down. Um, by Jason Reynolds, and then we dive into Dear Martin. And then the rest of the semester, we just read short stories and poetry by other, usually BIPOC authors and rural rural authors. So uh, I try to get a whole span of authors. We were reading Dear Martin, and in fact, it was just banned in Monette, Missouri, this school year, which is only 30 miles south of here. I had already had this book in my curriculum before the Monette mess, but the book wasn't the controversy, actually. Um, well, let's get to that, actually, before we get there, because I'm interested in the book itself before we even get there, because you said it was banned elsewhere, right? Because right. we'll talk about the worksheet and all that, which I think adds a whole other layer. But what what conceivable basis would, would another school district have to, to ban this book on it, on its own? Like, what, what are they, what's their rationale for that? So the book has a lot of, it does have a lot of curse words in it. So here's the premise, here's the summary of the book, or the premise of the book. So it's Dear Martin, because the main character, Justice, is a minority in a prep school, a private high school. As a minority, he just struggles with, you know, racial issues and his peers not recognizing, you know, the microaggressions. And so instead of a diary, he writes to Martin Luther King. I mean, it's a Dear Martin instead of Dear Diary. And he sorts through how to deal with his friends, his classmates. His, and that's that's the Dear Martin part of it. And and you're assigning this to high schoolers, correct? Juniors and right? seniors. Uh-huh. Juniors yes. and seniors in high school. Mm -hmm. And so to me, like the curse words thing can't possibly be the real basis for this, for that grade level. I mean, background for me is I taught a, a book with a lot of curse words in it in the seventh grade and had a, a my own fight with the school board in Nashville 
and you know they had a stronger argument because it was seventh graders right. um, and i still believe in it there but high school like there's tons of books that are taught all over the country and i'm sure in the school districts curse words or let alone anything that they're watching on tv oh in the back of my classroom on their phones but that's another <laughs> that's another issue but yeah yeah right so justice and his his best friend uh, manny get shot by an off-duty police officer and manny dies um and there is some racial profiling in the book i, I guess that might cause an issue. I just wanted to pause there and just be like, that decision to me is baffling to ban that book. And it seems overly defensive, you know, like these are realities that people face. And that that in and of itself to me seems suspect. But you obviously, you went a step further. You had taught the book on its own, but then, you know, one year you decided to add another layer to uh, your lesson. Tell us a little bit about what you did with this worksheet. So the curriculum I had used seemed kind of juvenile for my group. And so this I looked for other, um, just other curriculum out there. Every chapter deals with some part of racism, like affirmative action or racial privilege, or, you know, like every chapter dealt with some of these, these terms that we should know. And, we, and chapter three was racial privilege. And this worksheet that I did not design, but I approved for my room, was kind of in the light of, well, I'm aging myself here, but when you went to, you know, you looked at Seventeen Magazine and how Sagittarius are you or whatever <laughs> there, you know, their little mm-hmm. social media quizzes are now. That was in my, that's what I thought of it as. So it had these 15 questions, statements, um, just perspective. You know, have you ever been to um, a hairdresser or went to get your hair cut and the hairdresser didn't know how to manage your hair? And so you, mm-hmm. you know, you just circled. And then at the bottom, it had this little arbitrary, not scientific range of uh, you're not privileged at all. You're, you know, you might have some privilege or you're racially privileged. You probably don't know it. And what can we do about it or something to that effect? But, you know, that was the range. Not scientific. These aren't, you know, sociology terms. It was just it was my introduction to chapter three. It was my, you know, my attention grabber for chapter three, because the two characters SJ is, um, well, SJ, her name's Sarah Jean, but SJ, social justice. I mean, that's what she symbolizes. Uh, She's Jewish, Caucasian, and she's trying to explain to a Caucasian classmate how he's privileged. These are the kinds of things she's trying to point out to him. It's directly related to the text. Yeah, and and I'll read some of these. You know, you you named a few. I have I have never been the only person of my race in a room. I've never been a victim of violence because of my race. I've never been told I sound or act white. And this was enough to get you uh, before your local school board. And there were some parents who complained. I think I read here that some of these parents didn't have kids in your classroom. Is that right? Well, I can only tell you what my principal told me. Um, right. Uh, none of the parents had kids in my class. She wouldn't name the, the parents. I asked her. And she said, I'm not comfortable doing so. So I don't, I mean, so some ghosts, some mystery parents. And even if we don't know the identity of the parents themselves, could you explain a bit of the, like, the substance behind their concerns that they were raising about this worksheet that none of their children were doing? Okay, according to my principal, because this is the only way, this is the only communication I had, so you have to understand it's through a mediator. Uh, She told me in that first meeting, which was February 28th, uh, they had concerns because this is CRT, 
and she wanted to know the context. Why, how did this fit into what I was teaching? And so I told her everything I just told you. And I said, it's not CRT. Um, I don't teach CRT because I'm not trained in CRT. You know, and just to define the term for listeners, you're talking about oh, critical right. race theory, right? right. Which right. we've talked about on the pod before, but is kind of a catch-all for a lot of different things. Well, clearly it's a catch-all for discussing race because yeah. that's what right. I told her. <laughs> I said, you know, we're discussing race. This is Dear Martin. I mean, the character is black. He's a black young man in a nearly all white school. We're discussing race. It's the premise of the book. He writes to Martin Luther King. And so um, they said it was CRT. And give us a sense of how this lesson went down. Like, did they have a good discussion because of this worksheet? Do you think it accomplished what you wanted? Okay. It was the cover sheet to the other work that I had um, for chapter three. So it was, you know, there were a couple of pages. Um, it was not an assignment. It was not a worksheet, which I explained to my principal, who, by the way, supports me, who did everything by the book. It wasn't even meant to be a discussion. It was... Chapter three, SJ is really going to give it to uh, Blake and as a way of diving in, take a few minutes and just go through uh, and see how you answer. I didn't even ask them how they answered. It wasn't even met. It wasn't a dis- we didn't discuss it. It was it was to help explain what SJ was doing with Blake. And I, I just want to take a second to acknowledge that even if you had discussed it, that would be pretty reasonable given the context of the chapter in question and the book writ large. Right. Exactly. And so and then you get you get pulled in front of the school board. So you say your principal had your back, but the school board steps in. Is that right? So I think we after we have this conversation where I explain the context, I think we're good. I don't hear anything else. March 14th. She called me back in. Same worksheet said this is still a problem. Well, how do I? Okay, I haven't heard from anybody. From whom? What problem? What? What's the problem? It's CRT, and they don't like it. And she had told me earlier on the Fe- on February twenty eighth not to use that kind of um, maybe not to use that kind of material going forward. And then March sixteenth in the afternoon, my husband called and said, "You better talk to Dr. Kell, the superintendent, before the school board meeting." I'm like, "What? I mean, I I've been teaching all day. I'm clueless." He's like, "You just need to go talk to him." When I got down to his office, he didn't even say, like, what's concerning you? I mean, he he knew exactly. And he had said, um, so this is an hour and a half before the school board meeting. He said, I honestly cannot tell you if they're going to rehire you tonight. He said, I've had these conversations before where I tell a teacher, you know, I know they're not going to rehire you. He's like, I have no idea if they're going to rehire you tonight. Can I just for a second, you had taught Dear Martin the year prior, correct? Correct. I had. And had you received any sort of pushback, feedback, any sort of comments? No, no. And did the school board reach out to ask you any questions about the worksheet or the contents of Dear Martin or anything? No. The answer to your question is no. <laughs> and no. Did I read that your husband is on the school board and he you, recused himself? You uh, did read the... that. He was, yeah. yes, he was on the school board. He was wrapping up his three-year term. Of course he recuses himself. I mean, that's just how that, yeah, I mean, it makes you know, sense. it's a small yeah. town. I mean, there, there are several different conflicts of interest. And so it was a closed session meeting, you know, when they discussed personnel and he stepped out in the hall and when he came back, they went through the list of people they were hiring and not hiring. And when it was determined that they were not going to offer me a contract, I, he resigned immediately. I might misunderstand your town, but this feels to me like a civic breakdown in a way. Like, you must know these people. I do. I mean, I, I, I and, do. Like, and they just don't talk to you about it. Like, it just feels to me like 
evasive almost like, you know, like, why not just pull you in and talk about like, like, like one version of this conversation is they say, Hey, like, let me, let me know about this worksheet. How are you teaching it? Like, have you ever thought about adding class to the worksheet? Have you ever thought about adding other aspects of privilege to the worksheet? And then you could have a good conversation about that. It seems to me like there was a, almost a deliberate evasion of that conversation here. I mean, I could be misreading it, but like, are you, are you saying that it seemed personal? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, in, in a way, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, you know. Um, y- yes, because there was no professional courtesy whatsoever. I mean, it what there was no self correction. There was no time to correct. And you weren't represented by a union because you're not tenured. Is that right? Or funny you should ask that because there is a part of that story. So no, no, there's no union. NEA is a union and it serves mostly rural districts. But our school district is part of the Missouri State Teachers Association. And I've been a member. I think every year I've taught. I was a member this year. So I called the legal department. And uh, when I told them what happened and I read the the letter um, that explained why they didn't renew my contract, he laughed and he said, well, that right there is why you didn't, why they didn't offer you a contract. The bad news is there's no protection for a non-tenure teacher. The good news is this happens all the time. You'll find another job and you're just better suited for a larger school district. And the, and the fact that it's a larger district, is that just to say that your approach to teaching is not appropriate for rural students? Sounds coded to me in a way. Yeah. Wildly coded. Yeah. Put this in context for us. Like this is, you know, this, a lot of people view this critical race theory debate. It's like theoretical to them because I think, you know, it's, it's not tangible unless you're experiencing stuff like you are. Is this like, is this a nationalization of local issues at this point? Like to me, it feels like almost like if this were just a strictly local conversation, it would feel different. Right. But it almost feels like people are performing or getting their marching orders or whatever, their talking points and strategies from you know, up high, you know? Yes. And and that's part of the reason why I agreed to talk to you because, and part of the reason why I didn't resign, even though they gave me the option to, because this is, I'm not going away quietly because this is part of a bigger problem. This is not just Greenfield, some weird little town. No, no, no. We're a microcosm. This is happening big. In October, I served on the CSIP Comprehensive School Improvement Plan Committee which is a thing that happens like every 10 years, schools reevaluate their visions and their missions and they set their goals and how they're going to reach their goals. Okay. So I served on that committee. The community members on the CSIP were focusing on communication. There has to be open communication between the schools and the community. Now, this is way back in October. And I'm like, I don't understand. We have websites. We have, uh, we have social media. We have Google Classroom. I mean, all the te- all of our students have Google Classroom. Parents can see uh, what, t- and the community members were so focused on this communication. There has to be open communication. And our principal finally turned and said, what more do you want? We have this, 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 and this. Well, now in April, May, I recognize to your point, is this coming from a larger script? Yeah. Open communication. They want the lesson plans. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff out there. This guy named Chris Rufo, who's like the you might have come across this name. He's like the mastermind behind the critical race theory strategies, and he, you know, he explicitly announced a few months ago that transparency is their new strategy, and they're trying to use like quote unquote curriculum transparency as the sort of 
you know, tip of the spear in education politics to say, oh, you're against transparency. Like, why are you like, what do you got something to hide? You know, like that's their strategy right now. Can I ask to your point about it, your experience being a microcosm for what's happening around the country? How is this affecting your fellow teachers? Oh, <sighs> there is a pall over our district. Uh, there is a pall. And only, I figured it out, only 32% of our 7 through 12 teachers are tenured. And so our, that's- That's about, really low. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. We know. Yeah. I, I might have, I think 73 is our non-tenured. Our ter- teacher turnover rate is horrible. That's why, that's why we're a four-day-a-week school, was to retain, to attract teachers, because you know, most of them are driving an hour. So there's a pall, and nobody wants to speak because they're non-tenured. They can reasonably fire, you know, not offer you a contract because they don't like your blue hair dye, even if it is a school color. And so nobody wants to speak. It's really, people are afraid because nobody's secure. Nobody is secure. Wow. You know, I think my biggest question is, you know, as we round this out, is like, what next for you? Like, uh, what are you going to do? That is a really good question. I have applied for other, at other districts, large and small. I don't know. I've had an interview I haven't heard. I know my my references are getting calls about me, but I haven't I haven't been offered anything. Well, we have a big Missouri audience, so if people are listening, how do we get in touch with you? Uh, Kim Morrison three two one at Gmail. Yeah. So if you wanna if you wanna you know reach out to Kim, send her some encouragement, or if you know of any leads that are within driving distance of where she is, you know send it her way. And you know we really appreciate you fighting the good fight and sharing your story. And we're really sorry for everything you went through. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Grace, that was something. Uh, I think it's going to give us a lot to to think about. You wanted to make, I think, a few clarifying notes here. You know, just want to make sure you layer in a little bit of context here that the audience may want to know. Yeah, Kim sent me a really thoughtful follow-up email, and I think it kind of hit on some of these issues that we you know, in in hearing about her real-time experience with this didn't necessarily touch on as much. But one of them that I, I really wanted to highlight was the difference that she sees between kind of politicized racial phrases like white fragility or snowflakes, which like can have connotations to them. She like still very strongly believes that this idea of racial privilege is an objective term doesn't have a political leaning to it, just kind of is a fact. And that was what, you know, the book was addressing in the chapter she was specifically referring to. It's what the worksheet was asking her students to reflect on. And I think that when we get to this conversation of CRT, and she does mention this in the in the interview, that essentially it means anything to do with race at all is somehow right. off limits or wrongheaded or not to be taught in schools. But we need to fight against this really absolutist view that like all race should be off the table and that there is no room for discussions of racial privilege, which exists in so many different places and in so many different contexts that to think that that as a topic is somehow an infringement upon students, high school students, is a, is a really extremist position to take. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'm I'm left wondering what can you teach about race anymore? And I think it was notable that th- that she mentioned the book was banned in a, in a neighboring county and, without the worksheet. And so I think like a lot of people 
could say, all right, I would teach that worksheet differently. I would add this. I would add that. I would include more, you know, markers of privilege or whatever. Like it, people can have legitimate disagreements about this, but I think it's worth noting that the book itself has been under fire around the country. And so that is a, to me is like, whatever you think about this worksheet, which I think like there's a great discussion and debate that can be happening in good faith about it. Like, there's just no conversation about race, like you said, that is acceptable to a lot of the people in this debate. And also, like, it just makes me sad that people can't just have the conversation to be like, hey, like, here's how I would teach it. Here's how you would teach it. Instead of like, she had mentioned in the email that her principal and superintendent both recommended that she be offered a tenure contract. Mm -hmm. And this, this, this school board is overruling that. A school board that never spoke to her. Right. Well, we'll keep monitoring that situation. Uh, and... You know, if we if we find anything else out about Kim and wh where she lands, uh, we will let you know. And obviously, for those of you in Missouri, Missouri, whatever we say here, <laughs> uh, if if you're in and around where she lives and and have any good leads, uh, send them her way. For Grabinor, uh Look, I'll be honest, for the next few weeks until this book comes out, grab an or is just grab a copy of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Uh, but it is grab an or because a reminder that all of the royalties, uh, all of my royalties go to uh, the fight against veteran suicide and veteran homelessness uh, at Veterans Community Project. And uh, right now, if you join the launch team, which is Basically to say, like, if you pre-order the book and then you sign up to, you know, post about it and, and like help evangelize a little bit about the book, uh, then you can actually read the book like like a month and a half before uh, it actually comes out, which is, I think, a pretty good deal. Uh, so go to jasoncander.com slash launch team. That's jasoncander.com slash launch team. That's, that's it. Thank you. I have a quick announcement on the. I have a staff member from Missouri. He's awesome. He came from CNN. And we have this newsletter called the Lost Debate Newsletter. People could subscribe on Substack. On Friday, he's dropping a newsletter about how the politics of Missouri have changed. And I know we've got plenty of listeners from the state. So check it out. You can subscribe for free at the Lost Debate at Substack. As always, you can leave us a voicemail, 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. You can also email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Grace is at GraceLynch08 on Twitter. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allender, and Adesua Agbenile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.